Welcome, friends, to Charlie and Dropouts and the third episode of Field Studies, an ongoing series of guided audio commentary tracks designed to help shed light on the in-game lore as well as the real-world inspirations for the flora, fauna, architecture, and designed elements of these beautiful digital spaces in Final Fantasy XIV. I'm your guide for today, Victor Hunter, co-host of the Charlie and Dropouts podcast. We are members of the Axe of the Blood God Network, and the only reason I can do these sorts of experimental episodes when no one is looking is because of audience support. So if you enjoy the work we do over here, check out patreon.com slash bloodgodpod and chip in a couple bucks. A mere $1 a month gets you access to the Discord channel, where we have a delightful FF14 community with tons of weekly events and discussion. Charlene Dropouts also has a new RSS feed separate from Acts of the Blood God with gorgeous new album art, so please subscribe to that if you can, and some reviews would mean the world. Links to that are in the episode description. If you are new to the Field Studies series, they can work one of two ways. Listen as you would any other podcast, Folding Laundry, grinding PvP series ranks, or looking at the ceiling. The second intake method, and my personal favorite, is as a guided audio commentary track while you navigate the in-game space as I describe it gleefully to you. I like this method because I get to tell people what to do. Keep in mind, these are the only two officially sanctioned ways to listen to this podcast, and if you find yourself listening in a third, unauthorized way, prepare to find yourself somewhere else very soon. Prison. With these options, my hope is for the Field Studies series to be a fun reason to revisit old locations and a chance to recontextualize some of the places we visit as the Warrior of Light. It's a big game, memory is finite, and so often our experiences in digital spaces are treated as disposable. So why not come along and enjoy visiting these cyber neighborhoods with me? This episode's neighborhood happens to be one where you might just get your ass beat. So let's lay out the rules for how this one works. Today, we're not heading to any ordinary dungeon like we have before. No, 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 no. Today... We're heading to the region known as Eureka Animos. This will require the player to have cleared up to and including the final Stormblood 4.0 quest, simply called Stormblood. From there, you can accept the quest in Ralgar's Reach, known as And We Shall Call It Eureka. This will give you access to an NPC in Kugane that will ferry you to the Eureka zones as you unlock them. Now, there is no unsynced option for this area like there is with previous Field Studies episodes, so you'll be going in at level 70, though this region operates under a completely separate leveling system called the Elemental Level. Also, apologies in advance if you're new to Eureka, but you will probably die. Don't stress out about that too much until you are level 6, where you can start losing experience if you are not resurrected in time. And then level 11, when you can potentially be leveled down uh, if you don't get resurrected in time. Hmm. This isn't as scary as it sounds. Eureka has a capacity of 144 players, and a simple shout in chat for, for a res will almost 
always guarantee someone is on their way to save you from losing your precious progress. This will be a bit of an experiment, as players who have reached the level 20 cap for Eureka Animos will have a much easier time navigating the terrain, but on the flip side, a fresh-faced level 1 to 5 will have nothing to lose. I guess this is me ultimately saying, good luck. This episode might not be without some listener side friction if you're trying to follow along. And if you know me, you know I think that's neat. That's, as far as I'm concerned, that's good game design. Also, at the time of this writing, patch 6.4 just sneakily gave us some updates to how a handful of Eurekan Logos actions function. If you're coming to this episode because of a future update that I predict has renewed interest in Eureka, you are legally required to head to either patreon.com slash bloodgodpod or to twitter at bloodgodpod or at charlianpod, find the post containing this episode, and reply with the message, Victor was right. I look forward to it. Now is the time to get your quests unlocked if you're playing along. Head on over to Pier 1 in Kugane, and of course... As always, make yourself a snack. I'll meet you at the entrance to Eureka right after this. Welcome to Pier 1, which I'm sure deals in imports. Speaking with our NPC friend Rodney will send us off to Eureka with tragically little to do. These are the loading zones that break my heart. We're going to be talking about FF11 a lot today, so I might as well start here. FF11 would never let something like this happen. FF11 had a notorious airship and ferry transport system that functioned according to a real-world schedule. If you wanted to get from one port to the next, you would wait in the designated area, manually board the vessel once it arrived, and you would then spend several minutes on the ship as it took you in more or less real time to your destination. This would give you a chance to talk to other players on deck, share information, and sometimes band together to fend off monsters' attempts at waylaying the vessel. In recent years, FF11 added a teleportation system that functions a bit more like the modern etherites of FF14. And these sea and airships see less and less use. But for a guy like me, the chance to see the space between zones, or in the case of the airships, above, is something I yearn for in the 14 experience. Unfortunately, it really was the lower resolution and, and relative featurelessness of the FF11 landscape that even made it possible to create an airship's view of the land without breaking the verisimilitude of its geography. 
In an airship above Eorzea, one would expect to see too many landmarks, too many distinct geographical formations, and too many areas that, up to this point, have only existed as loading zones, which serve a purpose for the development team as locations brimming with potentiality. It wouldn't serve them well to give away locations of points of interest meant for later expansions, and on the flip side of that coin, it would be a bad idea to reveal too much of the world's geography when they have yet to decide what that geography looks like, and may want the freedom to insert landmarks that have definitely always been there without, you know, raising retcon red flags. At this point, feel free to sail to Eureka Animos if you haven't already, and we'll touch down at our first stop, Port Surgit. Now is the time to open your Encyclopedia Eorzea, Volume 2, if you have one, and turn to page 6. If you don't have yours handy, any map of the three great continents will do. I'm not going to delve too far into the storyline of Eureka, but there will be a few points that are unavoidable to give a better idea of what's going on here. The island, now known as Eureka, we are told, is located somewhere southeast of the city of Kugane, in the Glass Ocean, which you can see marked near the image of Suzaku, the phoenix, on your map. We of course know that Eureka was originally the Isle of Val, mentioned all the way back in A Realm Reborn by Minfilia. It was teleported here from the literal and figurative other side of the world, which we can see in this very same map. In the northwestmost portion of the map, we can see Old Charlian. To the north, we can just make out the Isle of Ham, which we recently visited in 6.4's dungeon, the Aetherfont. And to the south, we can see another major landmass in the Charlian archipelago, labeled the Isle of Yorn. Unfortunately, there's a bit of a discrepancy here with the Chronicle of the Sixth Astral Era in the Encyclopedia Eorzea Volume 1, which mentions the Northern Isle of Ham, the Eastern Isle of Yorn, and the Southern Isle of Val. So we have to assume one of these has simply swapped Yorn and Val by accident. Unless the Ironheart family of cartographers learned from the Vancouver School of Orienteering, where North Vancouver is east of West Vancouver, West Vancouver is north of Vancouver, East Vancouver is south of North Vancouver, the West End is south of West Vancouver, and no one can agree if South Vancouver exists. Either way, here we are somewhere in the glass ocean, the FF-14 equivalent of the Pacific. I have to admit, that because of the obfuscation of travel through loading screens, I gave Rodney here too much credit and the devs not enough. At the dock, we see Rodney next to a pretty sad-looking dinghy, the same dinghy he's standing near back in Kugane. For far too long, I assumed they didn't care enough to model a proper vessel for us and that we were meant to assume Rodney sailed us into the middle of the ocean by himself. But if we look directly south from our starting point and zoom in depending on the weather, we can see that Port Surgit 
is nestled in a rocky inlet, and our main vessel, which we can assume is the same ship docked at Pier 1, is anchored safely past the treacherous waters that Rodney has ferried us through. I'm afraid we have to dip into some spoiler country and discuss the Dawn Warriors. This will touch on some mid-game spoilers for Final Fantasy V, as well as some early reveals from the Eureka questline. Surgit is the last name of Zeza Matthias Surgit from Final Fantasy V, member of the Dawn Warriors, along with Galif Baldessian, and ruler of the Kingdom of Surgit. In FF14, Zeza Surgit is all but confirmed to be an Auri man who joined Kryle's grandfather Galif in research and study on the Isle of Val, where the students of Baldessian's headquarters was situated. It's plain to see that the construction here in Port Surgit is temporary and built in haste by the crew investigating the island's sudden appearance. It's unknown whether Port Surgit had infrastructure of its own before this or if new arrivals were expected to head inland to one of the other buildings we'll visit a little later. It's also not clear if this would have been a port used by the students or if its primary purpose was more clandestine work by Galuff and his closest companions. That would explain why they have a port in a rocky, treacherous inlet that is seemingly inhospitable. But perhaps that change in the geography was due to the teleportation of the island and the ensuing uh, imbalance of ether. Who knows? From Port Surgit, we're going to head counterclockwise through Animos. So feel free to get some experience or fill out your challenge log if you can. Eureka is where I have traditionally done most of my podcast listening, after all. You may even be able to make the low-level trek a bit easier if you happen to be playing Ninja and want to use Hide. Uh, just be aware that there are some monsters here that detect your presence through things other than sight, so use at your own risk. First, head for roughly the 27 by 29 coordinates on your map, and we can chat as we go. Not that there's a ton to talk about here so far. This area is the Squib Sands, and that doesn't appear to have any deeper meaning than being the sands where squibs reside. Even the appearance of squibs has no precedent in the Final Fantasy series beyond a type of frog that appears in FF11, but I suppose that's as good a time as any to touch on Eureka's connection to Eleven. You may have noticed that Eureka functions quite a bit differently than most areas of Final Fantasy XIV. There is no party finder, despite the region relying on coordination with other players. After a certain level, you'll lose experience upon returning to the Aetherite if you're brought to zero HP. And in general, Eureka isn't concerned with whether or not you know where to go or what goals you should be accomplishing. On top of that, the chat seems like people are speaking in another language. Love it or hate it, it's all by design and inspired by the limitations of older MMOs like Final Fantasy XI. Travel here requires an investment and poses a risk. It's not exactly the hour-long sojourns that FF11 presented to the player, but in a game like FF14, where just about 
everything is within arm's reach of an etherite. Even a medium hike can feel hostile to the player. For much of its 20-plus year lifespan, FF11 has deliberately made most of its world next to impossible to experience as a purely solo player. This is in stark contrast to the direction FF14 has taken since A Realm Reborn. But once in a while, we get a place like Eureka that keeps that spirit alive. Whether or not the design of 14 has cultivated a player base that is prepared for this kind of playstyle is another question, but I'm not here to make that call. I am here to say that if you're at 26 by 29, feel free to head up the root system that curls up from the south up to the northwest. When you reach the top, you should be at about 24 by 28. And directly north is a view of the island's center, the Baldessian Arsenal. Hopefully the weather is nice, but either way, this vantage point is our best view of not just Animos, but most of the landmarks of Eureka. As explained by Kryle during the storyline, the ether of Eureka has been thrown completely out of whack. If you have your Magia board unlocked and, and on your UI, it might help to picture it as a representation of the island itself as seen from above, with the Baldessian arsenal in the center. It's similar, but not completely accurate. For instance, we are in Animos, represented in the elemental wheel by wind. The easiest way to do this is to face directly south towards the ship that brought us here. Turning left, counterclockwise from here, we can see that the zone adjacent to Animos is under the influence of lightning-aspected ether. Continue turning, and we'll eventually see the volcano in the distance beyond the Baldessian arsenal, likely representing fire, Pyros. Then, directly on the other side of the arsenal would be Hydados, which is a flat region that we unfortunately can't see at all from here. Then, we see the ice-aspected mountain ranges of Pagos. You can see by your Magia board, then, that we're simply following the elemental wheel, but in reverse, which would mean that the rocky region, also adjacent to Animos, would be the earth-aspected zone. That makes enough sense, right? Here we are in Animos, the wind region. Surely our travels across the Isle of Eureka, uncovering its many mysteries, will lead us through all these elemental climbs. You fool. You ultramaroon. Veterans of Eureka already know this is the most wrong anyone has ever been. We won't be going to most of the landmarks we see here. In fact, I'm not even sure some of them exist. The Earth-aspected and Lightning-aspected regions, which <laughs> I'm just going to call Gaios and Kuranos, respectively, following Eureka's Greek naming conventions, are never explored or mentioned. That leaves Pagos, Hydados, and Pyros. Looking towards the ice-aspected region from here, we can see the frozen structures that formed high up in the mountains with the giant luminous crystals that hover through the air there. And of course, that zone also contains the ice bridges that lead directly into Pyros. Wait, no. No. 
What? No. For anyone who has made it to the third zone of Eureka, you'd know that despite being called Pyros, half of the region is still set in Pagos, with the northern part taking place inside a volcano that more suits the name. But, but how does Pagos lead to Pyros from that frozen structure? Is, is that volcano that we see from here in Animos not Pyros? Then, then what is it? Is the layout of the island not at all like a Magia board or the Wheel of the Elements? Later on, Kryle even compares the Ethernet of Eureka to the Magisite placed on the Magia board. In fact, the radial layout of the island is, is sort of important to the plot. So what? What happened here? That is a question I would really, really like to ask someone someday. Because for all the homage to Final Fantasy XI, Eureka stumbles flagrantly when it comes to capturing a cohesive sense of geography. Final Fantasy XI was not without loading zones, and it's not hard to argue that much of its open areas were largely featureless and provided little more than space to make your journey from one landmark to the next longer. But you can't say it didn't at least try to make the map make sense. I have a feeling that somewhere during the production of Eureka, the number of zones was cut back from six to four, and the areas that were furthest along were consolidated, Pyros and Pagos assets being combined to create the Pyros we see now, and Gaios and Karanos scrapped completely. Or maybe the Earth and Lightning zones were never planned from the start, maybe we'll never know. But it seems like the destiny of relic weapon expeditionary zones to be truncated before they can reach their full potential. Grumble, grumble, save the queen. Anyway, sorry that now you know this place doesn't make sense. It, it truly, there's no, if you've been to that structure in the, the in the ice mountain, you, you just know it, it can't, it can't exist. It doesn't, oh, it drives me crazy. Anyway, let's go look at a pretty lady. Feel free to jump off of our lookout point to the northeast, where you'll see Animos Harpias. Uh, one of the key features of Final Fantasy XI was the Notorious Monster system. Introduced soon after XI's release, Notorious Monsters are unique enemies that spawn either from an in-game timer, killing specific enemies nearby, or from other spawn methods not unlike some of the hunt marks in FF14. Eureka's notorious monsters mostly fall under the kill certain mobs umbrella, but can also be affected by factors like time of day or weather conditions. Here in Eureka, notorious monsters are integral to leveling and collecting crystals for weapon and gear upgrades. The NM that spawns here takes its name from an FF11 NM, Telus. While the Sirens were never named in Homer's Odyssey, later writers would give them distinct names like Molpe, Leucosia, or Ligeia, or even the less common, Telus. I bet classical literature enthusiasts love jokes about the dawn of fanfiction, so I'm not going to make one. The existence of Telus isn't groundbreaking, but it does confirm that the siren we faced back at Pharaoh Sirius 
is actually part of a species of beings rather than a one-off. It makes me feel bad for calling her Siren. That lady probably has a name. It's like calling your pet Dog. It's rude. Go ahead and head towards coordinates 30 by 20 and the etherite at the wind-torn cabin, and we can walk and talk. At roughly 25 by 27, you may pass a small dwelling labeled on the map as the Missing Sester. Now, the central area of Animos is referred to as the Orchard, and if you've looked skyward to the overhanging, overgrown trees, you'll notice large red fruit and purple flowers. It's safe to assume that before the ethereal imbalance, this was once a literal orchard. Now, this dwelling, the missing Sester, is built into the hillside, and yet appears torn apart from the top. It's unlikely that this destruction was caused by wind. A Sester is a term for a liquid measurement of wine or honey. It looks like someone or something wanted whatever was stored here. As we approach the wind-torn cabin and its etherite, we pass through the Val River Swale. If it's nighttime, you may even come across our old friends from the tour of the lost city of Amdapur. The Gormans are back. These gubu corpses animated by fungus return in droves, and by killing enough of them, it's possible to spawn the notorious monster known as Bombadil. I don't know why he is called that. There is nothing connecting him to the famous Tom Bombadil. And to make matters even more confusing, the fate is called Killing of a Sacred Bombardier, a reference to the 2017 film Killing of a Sacred Deer. But a, but a Bombardier has nothing to do with Bombadil. Is that a translation error? Besides, the idea of a parasitic fungal zombie then being used as a vessel for a void scent is a bit of a hat on a hat anyway. I like you, Bombadil. I just don't know what to do with you. Directly east of here is an area known as the Uncanny Valley, where a couple different NMs can spawn. The one we want to pay the most attention to is Fafnir, spawned by slaying fossil dragons that appear at night. Fafnir, like Nidhogg and Hreisvelger, is the name of a dragon from Norse mythology, and tales of Fafnir can be found in the Poetic Edda and the Volsunga Saga, where he was slain by the hero Sigurd with the sword Riddle. In Final Fantasy XI, Fafnir is a notorious monster that can only be lured out by using the item Honey Wine. In case you need further proof that Fafnir was the one who raided the missing Sester, his fate is called Wine and Honey. It's also possible that defeating Fafnir in the Uncanny Valley will drop the wind-up Fafnir minion, the flavor text for which reads, Why the scholar who crafted this mechanical marvel felt that an already deadly dragon need carry a sword, and a legendary one at that, remains unclear. When questioned, he simply refused to alter the design and began muttering about drop rates. This is a funny joke, because in Final Fantasy XI, the encounter with Fafnir has a roughly 5% chance 
of dropping a rare sword, aptly named Riddle. A side note purely for me, but the sword Riddle can also be translated as Refl. The name Refl, in such close proximity to a JRPG infused with allusions to Norse mythology, has finally helped me make sense of the character Rain's Japanese name in Tales of Symphonia, Refl. But I cannot go on a tangent now. I am almost 4,000 words into this thing, and we've barely seen half of this place. What am I doing? How did I think this could fit in one episode? <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a great idea. I'm, I'm, I'm making the executive decision to make this a two-parter. <laughs> if you're new to Eureka, hopefully that gives you a chance to, to level up a bit. And if you're a veteran, uh, you're probably sick of this place anyway. In preparation for this, I also fell off of a cliff while I was alone in an instance, and I leveled down. So I I need to go book a session with my therapist anyway. We're gonna we're gonna leave it there for now, and we'll come back next time for the second half of Eureka Animos. Thank you so much for listening to this first part of Field Studies Eureka. If you'd like to hear more Charlie and Dropouts, including our monthly roundtable episodes head over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. And again, subscriptions to our Charlie and Dropout specific RSS feed means the world to us. And I'm going to figure out a way to shout out people who give us five-star reviews on the pod. Subscribe on Patreon, join us on the Discord, and get your fill of RPG news and discussion all from the acts of the Blood God and Charlie and Dropouts. Um, oh, how do I sign off? Do I have a usual sign-off? Nadia has hers. What do I usually say? Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> okay, bye. I love you.